Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In March 2003, the U.S.-led coalition of the willing invaded Iraq, vowing to destroy Iraqi weapons of mass destruction and to end the brutal rule of Saddam Hussein. Yet after a powerful air power campaign branded as shock and awe and a swift march onto Baghdad, the war took a turn for the worse. Militias were formed and insurgency was born, and states hostile to the West, such as Iran, did all they could to blunt the US-led attempts to take control of the country. So where did this US military coalition go wrong? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and to find out, I've welcomed Ben Barry back onto the Warfare podcast. Not only was Ben the director of British Army staff in the UK Ministry of Defence, but he was the author of the British Army's lesson learn analysis of post-conflict stabilisation in Iraq. He's also the author of the excellent book, Blood, Metal and Dust, How Victory Turned Into Defeat in Afghanistan and Iraq. So, sit back as a true expert takes us through the key successes and failures of the Iraq War. Hi, Ben. Welcome back to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you here. And thanks for taking the time to help us mark 20 years since the start of the Iraq War back in 2003. I've said this already on the podcast, but they say 20 years is the start of history. Is it strange for you to think that we're now talking about the Iraq war in terms of military history? Not really. I think in a sense it hasn't quite ended though because the spillover from the Iraq war over a decade ago went into Syria and became ISIS or Daesh and ISIS is still operational in Syria. It's still actually operational in Iraq. Iran, who I think is the one actor that can have been said to have won the Iraq war, in inverted commas. It's the one that achieved more of its strategic aims than the US and the UK. Iran is still an actor in Syria and Iraq and is still in confrontation with the US and its allies. So although the US combat mission ended in 2011, I think the long tail of the war still goes on. And of course, its effects still reverberate. I mean, geopolitically, they reverberate in attitudes to the use of force, for example, in Washington, D.C., London, and European capitals. And of course, sadly, they will reverberate with the friends and families of those who were killed and wounded. 
You see, that's really interesting because I don't think we talk about Iran enough when we talk about the Iraq war. And of course, Iran and Iraq fought their own war over eight years during the 1980s. And it's for that reason that Saddam himself invades Kuwait. He is bankrupt by 1991 and he seeks to make money off the oil that is available there. Do you think that some of the the recent contestation and animosity that there is between the West and Iran comes from the Iraq war in 2003. Do you think Iran was buoyed by some of its successes? Well, I think so. I mean, the animosity itself dates back to 1979-1980, when Iran seized the US hostages, and the US subsequently mounted a hostage rescue mission, which was unsuccessful. You know, that created a chasm between the two nations, which has not really been bridged. I think, though, Iran was very canny when the Iraq war came along. I mean, it didn't choose to contest the US-led invasion, but it did play its cards, which it had accumulated quite cannily. For example, it had created the Badakor, which was a paramilitary group of former Iraqi officials and Iraqi prisoners from the Iran-Iraq war. Well, after the um, US had invaded the country, the Badakor was sent to Iran and its members instructed to institute themselves into Iraqi politics and into the Iraqi military. I mean, Iran also supported a lot of the Shia militias and death squads. I mean, we have to be quite clear what Iran's strategic objective was. It was to make sure that a government never came to power in Baghdad again that could pose a serious threat to Iran. It also wanted a good stake in Iraq's economy, which it has to a certain extent achieved around the pilgrimage cities of Najaf and Kabla. And it also wanted a weak government in Baghdad that it could influence and would take account of what Iran thought it was its legitimate interests. Now, as well as the Badakor, it rapidly sponsored Shia militants, the so-called Shia special groups which attacked the coalition, the British and Americans, in order to cause casualties to make it more difficult for the war to be sustained in national capitals. And of course, those militant groups also gained political kudos in the world of Shia politics from doing so. You know, the Shia militias came within an inch of victory in Basra. They didn't so much win the war in the rest of Iraq, but Iranian-influenced Shia politicians They've had a lion's share of political influence in Iraq ever since. Iran also supported Prime Minister Maliki, who actually came to power by a sort of judicial coup, albeit supported by the Americans. Now, Maliki was an unreconstructed Shia nationalist. And once the Americans had left, Maliki acted to increasingly marginalise the Sunni and discriminate against the Sunni. And that was one of the factors that gave ISIS such traction in Sunni communities in Iraq. Iran, of course, also came to the rescue of the Iraqi government in 2014. I mean, there's a popular image in the West that the thing that stopped ISIS, which had taken Mosul and Fallujah and Ramadi and was heading towards Baghdad, there's a popular impression that the thing that stopped ISIS was US-led bombing. The opinion I formed is different to that. It's that ISIS was stopped by self-mobilization by Shia militias. And there were two factors that drove this. One was the fatwa issued by Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani, who actually 
in many respects, has usually been a moderating factor in Iraqi politics. And the other thing was that Iran immediately mobilized support for Shia militias who acted to um, stop ISIS reaching the doors of Baghdad. You then get the US-supported international operation to support the Iraqi government evicting ISIS from Iraq, which takes quite some time, culminating in a nine-month battle for Mosul. And of course, has never been done completely. There's still nascent ISIS terrorism going on. Yes, the US and their allies came to support in terms of training and advice and air power. But I think Iran continued to support the Shia militias and use that to um, sustain its influence in Iraq. I think that's exactly right. And Iran continues to be this multifaceted thorn in the side of the West today. But take us back 20 years in history, Ben, to that moment in March 2003 when the war began. Do you remember the moment when you found out that the British military was going to go to war alongside the US and its coalition of the willing? Well, it had been building for some time in 2002 and the first couple of months of 2003. I was the director of the British Army staff in the Ministry of Defence. And although I wasn't central to the war in, the, in Iraq, one of the policy responsibilities I had was for the mobilisation of the then Territorial Army. And of course, that went pretty well, actually. It was the first real test of mobilisation of the TA for a long time. And before then, there'd been some concern, I think, in the Ministry of Defence and Army headquarters as to whether the TA would deliver the goods. And for our international listeners, Ben, the TA are are reservists, aren't they? Yes, they are. They were then called the Territorial Army. They're now called the Army Reserves. And they were volunteer reserves. They were people who volunteered to dedicate a proportion of their time to military training and be paid for it. But that came with a liability for compulsory mobilisation. And quite a few TA were mobilised for the invasion. And then over time for the stabilisation operation in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of territorial army were mobilised, particularly, for example, medics who provided the backbone to many of the British field hospitals that rotated out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And how many troops overall did Britain commit to the war in Iraq? It committed, in terms of 1st Armoured Division, it committed about 22,000. If you then add in the naval and air contributions, you're getting up of 40,000. Now, a couple of points about that British deployment. Originally, the British had been assigned by the US to advance through northern Iraq, moving through Turkey, to create a threat from the north that would pin Iraqi troops in the north and make sure that the Iraqis were diverted from the main US attack that was going to come in from the south. But politically, that proved to be very difficult. In fact, I give credit to then Defence Secretary Jeff Hoon for realising this wasn't going to work well ahead of the US. So the British land force was redirected to the south. The air component and maritime component were building in the south, and the special forces were assembling in camps in Jordan to go in through the Western Desert. I should have explained that previously, right up to the end of February, the British main effort for the British Army had actually been supplying troops to run fire engines as the firemen were on strike. So the British decision-making to send a, a significant land component was conducted very late. So the British sent HQ First Armoured Division and the division's own 
7th Armoured Brigade, which was built up to be the largest and most capable British armoured brigade the British had sent anywhere. But they didn't have time to send a 2nd or 3rd Armoured Brigade, so instead they sent the 3rd Commando Brigade of the Royal Marines and 16th Air Assault Brigade. Now, the British troops actually deployed to Iraq in half the time that it took them to deploy to Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in 1990 and 91. Now, why was that? It was partly because the readiness of the lead armoured brigade was greater, but it was also because in the intervening time, the British had invested significantly in strategic lift. They got C-17 aircraft. They'd also got four roll-on, roll-off ferries. You know, it was a significant achievement to deploy more troops more quickly to Kuwait than the British had deployed to Saudi Arabia in 2001. That's actually really interesting because I had completely forgotten that the British military had been used to... Were they breaking a firefighter's strike at the time and then they have to turn this around, move out and head out and go to war? Yes, basically. There was also political reluctance to be seen to be committing to a shooting war while the political track was going on in New York in terms of trying to get a second Security Council resolution to allow armed action. So the government didn't want to be seen to be gearing up for war while it was still arguing in the United Nations. It didn't want to be seen to be preempting the United Nations. This, of course, is in stark contrast to the US, who basically started deploying cheap troops into the region and into Kuwait a year before the attack. I mean, this also had a negative effect on British supplies and logistics, because it was only quite late in the day that the government was prepared to allow for new equipment to be purchased, the so-called urgent operational requirements. And it was quite late in the day that logistics was allowed to be outloaded. Now, what that meant was that although the troops and the fighting vehicles got to Kuwait just in time, some of the combat supplies didn't. So, for example, not all the British troops that went across the border had desert combat suits. Some of them were in green tropical combat suits. And body armour was an issue. Although there was body armour for all the troops in the British 1st Armoured Division, only a proportion of it was the enhanced body armour that had two ceramic plates, one on the front, one on the back. And there was a very sad incident where a soldier was accidentally shot and he died. And if he'd had the ceramic body armour plates on, he wouldn't have died. But of course, at the time, when he was asked if he was fit to go or no-go, Major General Brims, commanding the British First Armoured Division, was satisfied that all the combat infantry had the enhanced body armour. Everybody else had the ordinary combat armour, but in his judgment, it was good enough to go. I must say, if I'd been in Brims' position, I'd have made the same judgment. Well, take us back to those opening blows of the war, because it doesn't start as the ground invasion that comes next. We have the air attack that comes in, this shock and awe. Is this all part of President George W. Bush's political strategy of saying that the first thing we need to do is decapitate the leadership? Okay, well, the theatre plan about the relationship and timing between the opening of the air campaign and the opening of the ground campaign went through several changes. And shortly before both offences were due to kick off, US intelligence detected what they thought was Saddam Hussein having a meal in a restaurant in an area of Baghdad known as Dora Farms. 
So a laser bomb attack mounted by stealth fighters was authorised. It successfully hit the target, but it turned out Saddam was not there. In the case of the British down in the south, they attacked 24 hours earlier than expected. And the reason for this was because surveillance had picked up that the Iraqis appeared to be just on the point of setting fire to the oil installations down in the southern oil fields. So the operation by the US Marines and the British to capture and then secure the oil installations was advanced by 24 hours. So actually the US Marines and parts of 1st Armoured Division started crossing the border before the air campaign had actually started in earnest. And of course, this did create a measure of surprise because the US and its allies in Iraq in 1991 had done a month-long air campaign before the ground invasion started. And there'd been an even longer air campaign over Kosovo and Serbia, where it hadn't actually gone to a ground invasion. But again, the UK was preparing for a ground invasion. So in a sense, that created quite a degree of strategic surprise on the Iraqis. Was Saddam preparing for a ground invasion? Was it a deliberate attempt to subterfuge, to send in that ground component as quickly as possible? Like you say, air power had been most certainly the the core, the central piece of Western force deployments for well over 10 years. By that point, post-Cold War, it was air power that was the spearhead of how the West won wars. In fact, there were some who were saying, as, as you know all too well, Ben, that you could win wars through air power alone. Well, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that although the air campaign in Desert Storm in 1991 had been very successful, it would have been a long, long time before that air campaign would have destroyed all the Iraqi forces in Kuwait and would have probably inflicted quite a lot of civilian casualties and collateral damage. In fact, the air campaign dislocated the Iraqis and created the conditions for a great big left hook with the US and British troops in support that enveloped Kuwait. And the fighting in Kuwait didn't end up with the city being destroyed. Secondly, if you look at the um, complex war in Bosnia. Yes, the US-led NATO air campaign changed the dynamics, but it was one factor that changed the dynamics. Another factor that changed the dynamics was the success of the Bosnian Croats ground offensive in Western Bosnia. And I think there's little doubt that the Serbs would have resisted a lot longer with regard to the Kosovo air campaign, were it not for credible indications that the UK at least was serious about a ground invasion. Indeed, I have to credit Russia, albeit Russia was under a different government then, with playing a key diplomatic role in helping make the Serb government see sense. So it was more of a a broader political rhetoric that these wars could be won without deploying boots on the ground, when militarily it was always seen at this time, within the British military at least, that you'd have to have that ground deployment in Iraq at least in 2003 to ensure a victory overall. Well, if we go back, and the Iraq inquiry has exhaustively examined this. Yes, of course. If you look at US planning from 2001 onwards, initially the British just offered air power, maritime power, and special forces. It didn't offer a large ground contingent. But this changed, partly because the army argued that if you really wanted to influence the US management of the campaign, you had to put a substantial ground force on the ground to be able to influence the land campaign. And the British government accepted that advice. 
I mean, it's also the case, I think, that we now have a pretty clear picture of what Saddam's military plans were, partly because after the war, the US conducted an extensive research project where they interviewed a lot of Iraqi commanders and also compared that with the intelligence they had and the, and the fighting they did. The US determined that actually to destroy Saddam Hussein's regime, they had to get to Baghdad and occupy Baghdad. And in my book on the um, Iraq and Afghan wars, which I ought to mention, blood, metal and dust, our victory turned to defeat in Afghanistan and Iraq, now in a second edition by paperback, by the way. But you know the military achievement of the US forces in reaching Baghdad so quickly, really quite tremendous. In terms of maneuver warfare, getting from Kuwait hundreds of miles through the Euphrates Valley on either side of the river, the 3rd Infantry Division, which of course is a bit of a misnomer because it's a heavy armoured division, and the less heavy 1st Marine Division, really an epic advance, a masterpiece of maneuver warfare, and actually one that saw pitched combat in Iraqi towns in the Euphrates Valley and also a couple of pitched battles in the centre of Baghdad before the regime collapsed. And that advanced, I think, with a number of other battles of the invasion of Iraq, and also battles in the stabilisation of Iraq and Afghanistan, ought to be battles that are better known, particularly in the UK, and some of them certainly are battles that should be studied and taught in staff colleges. How quick was that advance, Ben? Because that, that most certainly was a shock to Saddam, to see these Western forces, Western coalition forces, marching on Baghdad, driving towards Baghdad as as quickly as they did. How quickly did they do it? Well, I think it was about two and a half weeks. Now, moving the armoured forces up there, fighting all the way, that's quite a considerable battle. Now, the fact that the opposition was more from irregulars, from Fedayeen, and also as the invasion went on, from jihadist volunteers, who were flying into Syria and then being taken by the Syrian government to the border and told to head east and find infidels and kill them. Not as easy as it might think. There were several pitched battles. In my book, I described two pitched battles for river crossings. And the second at a place called Objective Peach on the Euphrates, on the main roads heading into Baghdad, was the only occasion in which US forces were actually subjected to serious counterattack by the Iraqis, quite heavy fighting, hand-to-hand fighting in a couple of occasions. And then you get the 2nd Armoured Brigade combat team of the 3rd Infantry Division getting to the edge of Baghdad and the brigade commander deciding that the plan to take Baghdad, which is a very deliberate plan, involves setting up bases around Baghdad, launching raids more gradually, rather like the British did in, in Basra, which was also successful. The brigade commander decides, actually, it looks like the Iraqi defences aren't as strong as they might be. So he mounts a thunder run with one of his battle groups and himself in his forward headquarters, which goes downtown into Baghdad and then heads out to the airport. There's heavy fighting, but the armour on the Abrams and Bradley tanks defeats all efforts made against it. And the brigade commander agrees his proposal that The day after next, the whole brigade goes downtown into Baghdad. And then he decides that the brigade's going to stay there, occupying symbolic locations in the city centre. Well, by then, the US Marines have reached the other side of Baghdad, 
Iraqi resistance in Baghdad was very uncoordinated. A more coordinated enemy could easily have put up a lot of resistance and stopped the thunder runs. But despite some very brave fighting, including by both Iraqi regular soldiers and Mujahideen, the US prevails. And after that, the Saddam regime collapses. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 to get 20 20, to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Was that lack of coordination because of Allied success? Was it because of that air power campaign to render blind and death the higher echelons 
of Saddam's command chain. Yes. I mean, in a word, it was also because the British and American troops that took part in this, and indeed some Australian special forces, were all very well trained. You know, they were tough soldiers who knew their business and had done a lot of training and understood combined arms warfare. It's also the case that the armoured vehicles that the British and Americans had were superior to anything the Iraqis had. I mean, the Iraqis didn't have any armoured vehicles of later than 1970s vintage, and a lot of them were Soviet pattern armoured vehicles, and we've seen the weaknesses of those displayed graphically in the Ukraine war. But the Challenger and Abrams tanks and the Warrior and Bradley infantry fighting vehicles had a lot of firepower, and they also had excellent protection from their advanced armours. So most of the RPGs, the rocket-propelled grenades that were fired on them, sometimes in considerable volleys, basically bounced off. And that was a continuing feature of the fighting in Iraq during the bloody war of stabilisation afterwards. So you saw in Fallujah, for example, in the two battles of Fallujah, again, the armour on Abrams tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles defeating insurgent rocket-propelled grenades. We'll take us through that that war of stabilisation, because if you look back at the history, of course, it wasn't very long after the war started that President George W. Bush stands there victorious on board the USS Abraham Lincoln, and he declares mission accomplished. Now, that ship isn't deployed anywhere out in the Gulf. I believe the USS Abraham Lincoln is sat off the coast of California at that point in time. And so if we're having some sort of imagery about what this declaration of of victory was really all about, then we could perhaps say it was more of a political statement to say that everything was going well in the war on terror, which it most certainly wasn't. When do things start to go bad? And and when does this turn from a, a war of decapitating the leadership, a war of liberation, a war of ridding the world of this terrible dictator who has weapons of mass destruction, to purely being more of a a civil war mixed in with this urban fight against this disbanded Iraqi military, who were disbanded pretty early on. And of course, all of these other elements, you mentioned Iran already, you've got Syria as well. When does it turn into this muddy, bloody, bitter fight? Okay, there's a couple of different things here. My judgment based on on the research I've done, but also conversations with British and US officers and officials, is that there was planning for stabilizing Iraq thereafter. But it was based on an assumption that the Iraqi people would be very grateful, they would rapidly self-organize themselves into a Western-style democratic state. So we'd be welcomed as liberators, Ben? It would be something that would have a military role, but the military role would be no more demanding than it had been in the stabilisation of Bosnia and Kosovo. And you have to remember that most of the military leadership of the US Army and British Army had served in Bosnia or Kosovo or both, where by and large their stabilisation operation had been not fantastically challenging and there was very little armed opposition to what they were doing. Now, quite early on, the US decided that it wanted to massively reduce its troops in Iraq, and it wanted the United Nations to take over the lead for stabilizing Iraq, and it wanted lots of other nations to come in. Now, that is one of the drivers, I think, behind the famous mission accomplished speech. By the way, 
the the banner on the the superstructure of the aircraft carrier appears to have been an initiative of the ship rather than President Bush's team. And if you read that speech, one of the things he was trying to do was to reassure all sorts of other countries that the US was engaging to send troops. And of course, the image therefore had to be played that this was a stabilization operation of the likes of previous operations. I think what you get, though, is you then get a whole load of factors leading to the rise of the militias and the insurgency. So you mentioned the disbandment of the Iraqi army. It's also the case that the Ba'ath Party was disbanded and officials of the Ba'ath Party were barred from public jobs. Well, to be a school teacher in Iraq, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. So immediately, lots of the Iraqi public sector were out of jobs and also out of money. You then get real shortages of power because the power system has collapsed and the coalition aren't able to restore it quickly enough. You rapidly get a sort of Mad Max Hobbesian world in, in Iraq where the coalition is not capable of imposing much security and it's devil take the hindmost. So you get a massive proliferation of organized crime, militias. You also get death squads as well. You also get some heavy-handed tactics by the occupiers sometimes, which really insult the Iraqis. And then you've got prisoners, detention of lots of Iraqi men, in some cases pretty arbitrary, pretty brutally handled. And then in early 2004, when the photographs of Abu Ghraib are released. Of course, yeah. I mean, I think that is a decisive moment because it, it destroys the legitimacy of the coalition. It also actually cross-contaminates the legitimacy of the international stabilised operation in Afghanistan. And it leads to the conviction of, of seven soldiers for torture at this point in time. Yes, but of course, the legal process takes some time. Though I have to say, the US expedited their legal process compared with the court-martials of the British soldiers involved in the disgraceful murder of Baha Musa, hotel receptionist in Basra. But... Making things worse during this, this year between the mission accomplished moment and Abu Ghraib, making things worse is Iran busy making mischief, sponsoring Shia militias, sponsoring Shia death squads, and the flow of jihadists into Iraq, mainly through Syria, whose government was very happy to see jihadists flow into Iraq to attack the US. And Iran, of course, also was happy to see the jihadists doing this because another part of Iran's strategy was they wanted to deter at all costs a US-led regime change operation against Tehran. And the more the US and its allies could get bogged down in Iraq, the better. While all this, all this is happening, there's political negotiations going on, which does eventually lead to the drafting of an Iraqi constitution, the appointment of a transitional government a referendum on it, and some elections. And you may well remember news coverage of the time of Iraqis voting with their fingers dipped in purple ink. Well, that actually created the impression of progress in Iraq. And that, to a certain extent, created an optimistic strain in places like London and Washington, D.C. But actually, things were going wrong faster than the coalition really understood. I, th I think finally... You know, the coalition provisional authority was not competent. It wasn't well run, wasn't well organized. It had a lot of civilian staff on short rotations. 
It's questionable whether it actually understood much about Iraq. Ambassador Bremer could be a very difficult man to work for. It's also the case that down in the South, the UK government didn't resource their part of the coalition at non-military activity as well as it could, uh, for which the responsibility is Tony Blair's, but it's also the responsibility of lots of officials for not arguing loud enough in Number 10 and Whitehall. So, you know, Iraqis would ask journalists the question, we've been occupied by the US and its allies, the US put a man on the moon, why can't they sort out Basra's power and sewage systems? To which there was no answer. It's a fair question, isn't it, Ben? And 2003, 2004, 2005 are incredibly turbulent years. I mean, you've got the suicide bombing of the UN headquarters in Iraq when you have someone who takes this explosive-filled cement mixer and, and destroys the headquarters. You've got the battle for Fallujah. You've got, of course, Saddam is is captured at this point in time as well, but then you've got the WMD search that's aborted from January 2004. I mean, when do things start to go right again for the coalition? I mean, there are sort of spikes of positive coalition activity in 2005, 2006. For example, the application of counterinsurgency tactics in Al came out in the Western Desert by the US Marines and the US Army, the Army Cavalry Regiment under then Colonel H.R. McMaster, doing a model coin operation, counterinsurgency operation in Ramadi. But actually, things continue to deteriorate. And by the middle of 2006, Iraq is in a slow burning sectarian civil war, which neither the fledgling Iraqi security forces nor the US military can effectively suppress. So you then get a change of strategy from the US because the strategy up to then had been transitioned, summarized in a soundbite by President Bush, as the Iraqis stand up, we will stand down. But that wasn't working because the Iraqi security forces were fragile. They were infiltrated by militias and their leadership was often weak. And the US still continued to hand over to them and then was surprised when the areas they handed over to Iraqi security forces, security deteriorated. But President Bush, to his credit, and he does deserve credit for this, declined to accept the advice he was offered by the Pentagon, the National Security Council, and the machinery of the US government, which was to continue with the strategy of transition. And he decided that instead he'd reverse transition and surge US troops into Iraq for 18 months. And that was effective. And Bush also made a good judgment call in selecting General Petraeus to lead it. Now, it was hard going for the first six months or so. US casualties, for example, actually increased, both as the number of troops on the ground increased, and they went into more insurgent controlled areas as part of a clear hold and build strategy. But it did turn the tide and it did push back Sunni insurgents and Al-Qaeda sufficiently to make a considerable improvement in security. Now, the idea was that this improvement in security would create the conditions for political progress in Iraq, particularly some form of political reconciliation between the Sunnis and the Shias. But that didn't happen nearly as fast. Now, we can see in retrospect that was due to Prime Minister Maliki's reluctance to embrace Sunnis and to treat them equally. But that certainly made a considerable difference. And, you know, it completely altered the security dynamics in Baghdad. 
It also improved it in the belts around Baghdad, the sort of Baghdad equivalent of towns on either side of the M25. There were some interesting battles, including the clearance of Thada City by American and Iraqi troops. And there was pitched urban warfare as well. I think one thing, observation I'd make from Iraq is that, you know, the conflict was war amongst the people. So it was where the people were. And Iraq is was a modern urbanized nation. So competence in urban operations was absolutely essential for the US and British troops. I'd go further to say that the strategic trend, a global megatrend of urbanization, means that urban warfare becomes an increasingly important competence for all armed forces. In fact, armed forces that aren't competent in urban operations have to be seen as incompetent. It certainly is a, a foreboding to the rise, or I guess you could say re-emergence of, of urban warfare. It's safe to say that urban warfare is, is nothing new. But there's this combination of the surge of General Petraeus, of course, the Ambar awakening, all of these things combined to mean that the country does start to stand back on its own two feet. And then you have this famous transition of the Iraqis out front as the British handover control of areas like Basra to Iraqi forces. But I suppose my final question to you, Ben, is you mention about this experience of urban warfare and Petraeus coming in and, and applying his strategy. Do you think there's a legacy of the West's involvement in urban warfare in Iraq, its understanding of urban warfare in Iraq, its success in some ways in urban warfare that has played over into the current war in Ukraine, which in many ways, and has often been, a predominantly urban fight? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, I, th I think the British and American troops that operated in Iraq from, say, 2004 onwards, they were relatively well prepared and well trained for what they were doing. And they practiced to do war amongst the people. And they'd had access to sort of training villages and small towns. If we say that the Iraq and Afghan wars ended in 2011 and 2014, they, of course, both had long tails. And we must accept also that in Afghanistan, the Taliban won. You know, the Taliban won and they defeated the Afghan government and Afghan forces into which the West had invested an awful lot. They also defeated the Western project for the modernization of Afghanistan, as we've seen with the results for women and girls and a free media, for example. And embarrassingly, horrifically quickly. Yes. And I do sense when I talk, particularly in the UK, to officers in the army and indeed to government officials, there is a reluctance, a reluctance to accept that the British came within an inch of losing Basra and were rescued more by the Iraqi army and the Americans than they were by their own efforts. And that if anyone won in Iraq, it was Tehran, not the US and its allies. And when I say to them, you know, there's an uncomfortable truth here that the Taliban won and you lost in Afghanistan, then they don't want to engage in discussion about the consequences, is, is my experience, which I think is a mistake. Now, some armed forces are much better prepared for urban warfare than others. I think probably the best prepared in the world is the Israelis, partly because they have what I see as the largest and best urban warfare training facility at their own national training centre in the south. The US, I think, understand the centrality of urban warfare, and they've invested in urban training facilities, as have both the Army and the Marine Corps. 
the French and German armies have, and they have impressive large training facilities. I'm afraid in the case of the British, their urban training facilities are smaller and less impressive than the French and German ones. But yes, you know, Ukraine has a lot of urban areas. It's also got a lot of woods and troops made good use of the woods, defeating those initial Russian columns that sought to capture Kiev. And operations in woods, are it's complicated terrain, rather like urban warfare, it's complicated terrain. But I go back to what I said earlier. War is about where the people are. And we've long passed a tipping point, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, when the majority of people in the world actually lived in urban terrain rather than rural terrain. And the proportion has continued to increase since. And for armed forces, and I don't just mean armies, but I also mean air forces and navies as well, operations in and around urban terrain actually should be priority number one. Well, Ben, it is always an education to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the Warfare Podcast. Now, you've mentioned your book once, but you've got to tell us again. What is the title of the second edition of your book and where can we buy it? Well, it's called Blood, Metal and Dust, How Victory Turned to Defeat in Afghanistan and Iraq. You can buy it from most good bookshops in the Western world. And it's now out in a paperback second edition, which has 16 extra pages, half of which are devoted to explaining how it was the Taliban defeated the Afghan government forces and won in Afghanistan. And the other half of the extra text covers other material, including, for example, several pages on the revolution in battlefield medicine. And I suppose the revolution in battlefield medicine is one of the silver linings to come out of this considerable cloud of both wars. Well, I have read the book. I use it for teaching my students. Ben, you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.